Hello, Talking Foosballers. Here is Matt Herman of the Talking Foosball Podcast. I'm here just about to introduce a special Patreon bonus podcast that we are actually putting out to all of our regular listeners as a bit of a taster of what you might expect if you become a patron of our podcast on Patreon. This is Talking Foosball Extra, which is a show that Talking Foosball contributors and, and alumni, if you will, Nick Wildhagen and Terry DeFellin do every few weeks on our Patreon feed. And as you'll hear from this example of what they're doing, uh, they get into some pretty deep waters in terms of, you know, the sort of cultural impact of football and what it means in Germany. What this show is really about is giving people a chance to hear about what is going on in the German football scene and in the heads of Nick and Terry, who are very much in on that scene. That kind of steps a few, you know, strides back from the week-to-week Talking Foosball, Talking Foosball fantasy topics that we cover in the regular podcast. The episode that we have here is with Felix Tamsut, a journalist at Deutsche Welle, shout out Deutsche Welle, who covers a lot of fan culture issues and issues of German football and society, things touching on everything from football finance to anti-racist campaigns to how fan groups interact with clubs in Germany. And it's really fascinating stuff. I think you're going to like it. I hope you like it enough that you go over to patreon.com slash talking foosball and you decide to part with a little bit of money just to help us keep up the pod pay for production costs perhaps finance some more ventures in this direction towards more content for you guys anyway without further ado i think that was plenty of ado here comes talking foosball extra and welcome to an all-new Talking Foosball Extra. My name is Nicholas Viltagen, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the first episode of the 1920 season of Talking Foosball Extra. It's been a long time since we recorded an episode, so there's plenty to talk about. Alongside with me, there is an author of the upcoming Borussia Dortmund book, Borussia Dortmund, A History in Black and Yellow, Terry DeFellin. How are you? I'm very well, Nick. How are you? Good, good. Additionally, we invited a star guest to join us tonight, and he said yes! Would you believe it? Making his first ever appearance on our show is none other than Deutsche Welle's excellent football journalist, Felix Tasmund. How are you doing there over in Germany, Felix? Yeah, it's, it's quite warm over here, which I'm used to from back home, but here it's not very normal, but enjoying the sun while it lasts, basically. <laughs> well, good thing you stayed, stayed inside to be with us tonight, then. So what's on the menu for this episode of Talking Foosball Extra, you might wonder. Well, let me enlighten you. In the first segment of the show, we are discussing the emergence of plastic clubs and if they're representing the future of football in the light of the demise of Barry and Bolton over in the UK. For our mid-show segment, Terry has interviewed Ryan O'Grady about Hoffenheim's history and their time after Julian Nagelsmann. Ryan is, of course, better known by the Twitter handle at Hoffenheim UK. And finally, the three of us are going to dive into what's been going on at Chemnitz FC, Tennis Borussia Berlin, and we'll be discussing the controversy surrounding Schalke CEO Clemens Tjernis. That was quite a mouthful. All of that is to come after this short musical interlude.
Here we are. So, Terry, there have been some headlines in the international football press regarding the demise of Bury FC and Bolton Wanderers, two traditional English football clubs. You over there in the UK, fill us in on the latest developments regarding those two traditional clubs. Well, the latest development is actually hot off the press is that Bolton Wanderers, who also had a deadline from yesterday as we're recording this at 5pm to demonstrate that they could find an owner or otherwise they'd be expelled from the Football League, that was extended ever so slightly and indeed it does appear that a new owner has emerged. We know a little bit about this owner and we know that he is probably just as, well, I'll just be blunt, he's just as unscrupulous as the previous owner. So it looks like Bolton Wanderers have gone from the frying pan into the fire, or in Bolton's case, from the frying pan to another frying pan, into another frying pan, and then into a fire. But for the time being, at least, it looks like Bolton has been saved. Berry, on the other hand, have been expelled from the league. The extent of their liabilities was such that the prospective new owner, which is, a, I believe, a sort of like a football data analytics firm that was looking to buy the club, just couldn't make head or tail of the finances of the club and its various sites and didn't know what they were buying and just had to pull out. It emerged that the situation there has become so convoluted that there are so many different creditors and there are even the possibility of unknown creditors coming forward that it's just impossible that in fact this club's been dead for some time it's just no one has actually pronounced the rights over it to give you an example the owner previously or the pre the owner before hat last actually started selling the car parking spaces to investors so this is not using the car parking spaces at the football ground to park cars in. This is to sell them as a potential investment opportunity. £10,000 per car parking space. And people bought them. Country Companies got into administration, obviously. And those people are owed money as well, which is extraordinary and gives you an indication of just how bad it is. So it looks very much like Berry FC, which was established in 1865, has won two FA Cups will no longer exist or, or will probably have to reform as a as a Phoenix club. And there's a lot of hand-wringing going on here at the moment and a lot of angry glances being fixed upon the uh, English Football League for their complete lack of, of regulation and their unwillingness to intervene. It's incredible. Bolton played in the UEFA Cup as recently as 2007-2008. Well, given that both clubs come with a lot of history, one does wonder how this could have happened. In Germany, even the big guys, especially Bayern München, to be fair to them, have helped out smaller teams in their time of need. Bayern famously helped out your club, Borussia Dortmund, with a loan during B4B's darkest hour. <laughs> St. Pauli even. And you know, this summer they, they actually had a friendly against Kaiserslautern to save them from financial ruin. Why has there been any sort of interest from, you know, other bigger clubs helping out these two teams, given that they are, as you say, historic sites. Football clubs in England are not football clubs. They're businesses. And so they're run as businesses. Most of the people who, who run football clubs are bluntly Thatcherite, pro-market, free marketeers. It's just an anathema to them. It's just anathema to them. They don't, they wouldn't, they, they just wouldn't see it as being like that. Um, in fact, in recent years, solidarity payments from the Premier League have been reduced to those kind of payments that go down into the lower leagues. And so the money's dried up even more so. And this, this idea of trickle down, which you hear an awful lot of people, you know, on the right of our politics sort of like saying is, you know, one of the, the great things about, about, you know, market capitalism. It's just, just, it's just a, a myth, at least in football's case. But of course, as we know, football clubs are not businesses. 
they make terrible businesses and they need to be run you know as associations and as clubs and this is what what's happening either that or they need to be very very heavily regulated and again this is this is these are words that just don't fit in the mouths of people who own football clubs and who run businesses generally speaking in this country so it's a it's a political and cultural issue in my opinion felix any any thoughts on on what's been said yeah, so far? i think I definitely think there's a very, very strong difference between the culture of owning clubs in the UK or how to operate a club in the UK and how it is down here. Admittedly, I am a, I am originally a supporter of an English club. I am a supporter of Manchester United, traveling supporter as well. And as such, I can honestly say that when I moved to Germany a few years ago, I basically discovered a completely different world, a world in which a football club is at the center of its community is considered as a community as a community center is considered as a go-to place for people with all sorts of issues in the community and that used to be the case in the UK in the earlier days as far as I'm, I mean I can only I was I was never I wasn't there in person but I'm only talking about like recollections of people that I know that have been supporting English clubs for many many years and their recollection was that it was like that the football club is at the center of its community that's not the case anymore nowadays when you have owners owning football clubs for whichever reason it is, be it publicity, be it um, money laundering or whatever else, that has nothing to do with the local community. Whereas here, no matter how you spin it, even big clubs like Borussia Dortmund and like Schalke, clubs with hundreds of thousands of members, clubs with even more fans, clubs that, uh, with average attendances of uh, 60, 70,000 people, clubs that have decent amounts of money to pay players, they still understand that they have local responsibility to their community. That's very strong in Gelsenkirchen, for an instance, with Schalke, but also with Dortmund and their political and social projects. So I think it's just a completely different reality. I think Germany, in a way, took a couple of things from the old English perception of the club as the center of its community and sort of made them... Yeah, I would say improve them in terms of the regulation, in terms of how a club is being perceived and in terms of keeping the club literally that, a club with members. I think that's a massive, massive issue. I feel terribly sorry for many football fans in the UK. We also have to remember that we talk about Bury and Bolton now, but even big clubs like we all remember that Liverpool had financial difficulties in the past. United, it's a very, very rich club, but they're owned by... Yeah, by a family that basically takes money out of the club constantly for for 14 years already. And the, even the reality on the good side of things, we've all heard, uh, who was it? I think it was Rangnick, Ralf Rangnick recently that said, let's take a, look, take a look at Man United and Liverpool and see how they, they can spend money and how we need to learn from that to be open to investors. So Man United is a team with ever ever worse infrastructure old trafford hasn't been refurbished in years the uh, training facilities for the youth team are not in a good state yet the glazers don't care they get the money in their pockets so that's a very good example of like that that stark difference between the culture in the uk and in germany and i have to say that from a communal point of view from a local point of view it's way, way healthier to keep it as it is in Germany, despite the voices that try and emphasize that the other solution is better, in my opinion. Yeah, Romney, he really does love money, doesn't he? Uh, I mean, he didn't get enough of that at Hoffenheim, so he ended up at RB. 
Surprise, surprise. Uh, well, speaking to your point, Felix, uh, the German football historian Hardy Gruner actually published an article uh, on Zeitspiel magazine's homepage today, writing that the 50 plus 1 rule is something to be treasured. Gruner goes on writing that the rule prevents this sort of thing that happened to Barry and Bolton happening in Germany. Would you agree with that assessment, Felix? To an extent, yes. I don't think it completely prevents it from happening because we all know that clubs in Germany used to have financial difficulties as well. You mentioned Dortmund. There's other local clubs that face financial difficulties. But if you sum the whole, the, the, the whole story up, it's the healthier way of running a football club if you think of having the community in mind. It's just once it's, it's, it's just clear, once a community is at the heart of a football club and a football club is at the heart of the community for real and it's being run by members, by fans, by people that have the passion, the people that know their club inside out, it's much more sustainable as we can see in Germany. Yes, the football is at times not as good. I would argue that it's very good in Germany in, in comparison to most leagues on earth. But yes, it might not be the Premier League, but it's healthier. It's better for the local community, most of all. It's better for match-going fans, which is a massive deal also in the UK. The, the sort of withdrawal that football clubs sort of go back and turn their backs to match-going fans because... TV income is so massive. I, I personally totally agree with that it's much more sustainable. It's much more. It's much healthier, and I would. Th I think Germany or the the German Football League, the German Football Association, would make a big, big mistake to hurt the 50 plus one rule. Reforms is something else. I think. We can discuss all sorts of possible solutions of how to maybe reform here and there. But generally speaking, I don't think there should be any doubt as to the efficiency and to how important the 50 plus one rule is to football here, both locally, nationally, and I would argue internationally, because at the end of the day, the small clubs are the ones that provide players for the bigger clubs to, to clubs abroad and to the national team. So I think it all stems from different sources, but one of them is definitely the 50 plus one rule. And I would honestly hope that it would stay that way as long as possible. Yeah, I was just, I would, if I don't mind me just adding a, a quick one to that, Nick, if you look at clubs like Kaiserslautern and 1860 Munich, if they were English clubs, I think that they would be in far worse conditions now than they are in Germany. And I think that the 50 plus one, you could argue, has saved those clubs. I mean, 1860 Munich has been run by, well, by someone with, with very uh, specific ideas about how a football club should be run, but didn't bother to find out actually whether or not they were allowed or even sustainable. I'm not quite sure what Kaiserslautern's issue were, but I mean, I'm, I think it's reasonable to assume that we're talking about a period of sustained mismanagement. If these were English clubs, they would be in a far worse position than they are now. And I think that that speaks to the importance of the 50 plus one rule. I would suggest to you that over here in England, there will be the beginnings of a groundswell of football fans in England looking at the German 50 plus one model and saying we need to start introducing this model in certainly into our lower professional leagues because this may well actually be the best way that they can be they can be run and, and I think that the institutions over here like Supporters Direct uh, are going to play and the Football Supporters Federation are going to play a huge role in trying to educate the English football public on that. The irony appears to be that there's a, a movement here not amongst the supporter base but a movement over in Germany rather amongst club owners and you know people with 
strong stake in football in going the other way in trying to take the investment route bringing in private capital in and, and relaxing 50 plus one and maybe even doing putting an end to it and it is always a, it's a bit depressing to see the 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 so-called plastic clubs sort of you know, doing relatively well so that then people can then, you know, advocates for this point of view can point to them and say, well, look, they're doing okay. But I don't really think that that's telling the full story, to be honest. Well, let me pick up on your the last point you were making there about people within the German game saying, look to England. They've got it all figured out. They've got the big investors coming in, spending the cash on players and all that kind of stuff that we should be doing. But the 50 plus one rule prevents us from that. I mean, yes, you have uh, Mr. Ismig in over there in Munich, who owns 1860 in München, who has a lot of fanciful ideas. I mean, uh, my favorite one was that he wanted to create uh, a zoo outside a new stadium featuring lions that were going to be named after 1860 Munich legends, which, you know, came to nothing, of course, because, you know, to, to feature a zoo in front of a new stadium, we have to build a new stadium, which he simply didn't provide the funding for. But yes, this guy, um, who was actually... If I'm not mistaken, he was actually under the impression that he was buying Bayern München. He didn't do any research whatsoever, arrived in Munich, signed the papers, and afterwards he found out that he actually bought the other team in Munich, which uh, I think is absolutely hilarious if true. Anyways, he is a strong advocate for abolishing the 50 plus one rule. You have Martin Kind, who threw another, another hissy fit about the 50 plus one rule just the other day. And you've got the likes like Freddy Bobic at Frankfurt who say we have to get that sacred cow off the ice. So with that mounting pressure, how long is this going to be sustainable? How long can Germany keep on holding tight and keeping the 50 plus one rule? Or are we, are we in the near future going to see the same thing happening to clubs in Germany like what happened to basically Barry and Bolton? I personally think it's in a way, I can understand why it's like that, but it's very easy to sort of pick up those voices that call for the abolishment of 50 plus one, the Kins and the Ismaiks. It's very easy to sort of, and the Rangniks and the Nagelsmanns, etc. It's very easy to sort of amplify their voices, but there is strong objection in Germany to abolishing the 50 plus one. Every single DFL meeting on that has ended with, uh, yeah, most clubs voting against the abolition of 50 plus one. You have many clubs in which you have strong uh, objection to the abolishment of 50 plus one. Clubs like FC St. Pauli, for instance, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Vatke from Dortmund said similar things in that direction, not as not as strongly as, by, as, as, as at St. Pauli, but still, generally speaking, I think there's an understanding among the vast majority of football people in Germany that 50 plus one is something that matters not only in the sustainable sense of the word, but also in terms of the connection to the community, also in, the, in terms of the connection to, again, match-going fans, which, some, which is something that I feel is uh, massively important and is a bit on the way of getting lost in England, unfortunately. Given all that, I think there's there's like substantial enough support to 50 plus one as it is. I also think that the Ismaiks and the Kings are currently considered... Yeah, I would. I wouldn't say they're considered to be examples for good management, and that's also a reason why it's easier for uh, the advocates of fifty plus one to come and say, "Listen, these are the people that are against that concept. What does it say about it? What does it say about their stance that they manage their 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 clubs and their businesses in such a way that makes them into a laughing stock in Germany? This is what you want to see, because." 
yeah, there is no other way of putting it. For every Chelsea and Liverpool, there's a Bolton and a Bury. And there was a very interesting piece today written by Henry Winter in the, in the Times in which he wrote, we are facing, in those exact words, if I'm not mistaken, we are facing a situation in which we will see more Boltons and Burries than we will see Chelsea's and Liverpool's. We need to find another way. I personally, I'm not, I don't know my economy. I'm not very good at these things, but I cannot see a more sustainable concept. I cannot see a more sustainable idea than keeping the club or the, the operation of the, what's what's called here, FV, Eigentagere Verein. Verein is not exactly a club, by the way. It's, the German language is a very complicated thing to understand. I'm, I'm still not 100% in terms of it. But yeah, I mean, it's a concept that keeps the club in the hands of those that who, who actually care about it, who actually understand the meaning of its activities and not only watch it on TV. And I think that's a massive, massive deal. That's currently the consensus in Germany and long may it, may la long may it last. I, I personally don't see changing anytime soon. I really, really hope I'm not wrong. No, and I think if you can just reinforce, or if you look at Bayer Leverkusen, for example, and you look at Rasen Balsport and to a lesser extent Wolfsburg, and the achievements that those clubs have had, and those clubs have had achievements because they have and do have, you know, benefactors, essentially, that are bolstering them. If they were clubs based upon just the income that they brought in, they, you know, I could argue, well, they arguably wouldn't even be in the Bundesliga or certainly would be, you know, grey mouse clubs. And indeed, in Wolfsburg, cases up to fairly recently were and, you know, you know we thought we're going back in, into that. So, you know, I mean, in principle, I don't have a problem with the works, with a, with a factory buying a football club for its local community as a civic amenity to say, you know, you know, we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to give you a football club because, you know, you, know, you have leisure time and we're going to give you this football club and that's fine. It's just that, you know, it's one thing to say we're going to give you a professional football club for you to enjoy football, and then and then it's another thing to say, and then we're going to go and play in the Champions League. <laughs> I said, well, you know, you don't really, do you really have the infrastructure? Do you really, do you what? Do you have the? You know, how how do we know that's going to be sustainable? And I mean, it's in in these kind of instances you can understand how it would work, but are you then if you look at uh, you look at Erdogan for example, where the funding was pulled away, if I'm understanding the history of that club collect correctly, mm -hmm. and you can see how far things can 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 fall for them. And I mean, this is this is what I just think about the the premise of these clubs is that you know the, the likelihood is is that without their benefactors, they're not sustainable at the level that they're at, and that in turn. You know, I mean, you know, causes, you know, or, or any manner of heartache for the fans and also for people you know, who work or depend on the club for their income. Erding is another interesting case, though. Um, funny you should mention that. They actually have a Russian owner with, I quote, interesting ties to the Russian oil industry. Uh, I, I seem to remember I've uh, read about him. Whatever interesting ties to that particular industry mean. But, I mean, basically to sum this discussion up a little bit. What we do say that what the 50 plus run rule basically does is makes the higher ups in the club accountable to the fans, and that has been lacking over at Bolton and Barry and you know a whole bunch of other teams in the UK. As those teams have basically just become playthings for rich guys who um you know some of them have been proper 
property developers and all that sort of, you know, ripping ripping the uh, clubs of the most valuable real estate they had in their ownership, really not caring at all about the people who were supporting the club. Uh, in terms of 50 plus one, I do think that there is going to be a strong majority within German football for a long time, as Felix mentions, keeping that rule up. What would be interesting is if there was a court case brought in front of a European EU court because that could really till that one. I think that is probably the biggest danger. So far that hasn't happened. Returning to your point ever so slightly, Terry, you mentioned RB Leipzig, but that club is really running a mockery of the spirit of the rules. There might be, you know, there might be complying to the rules uh, by the letter of the law, but really having having a Red Bull stadium and, uh, you know, getting funding from Austria all the way through, it really runs a mockery of it. Uh, So they have shown pretty much that it's quite easy to circumnavigate the 50 plus one rule if you want to and the worry is is that other clubs will follow suit of course precisely do you which think is that- why there needs to be a tightening of regulation so that that can be stopped and i don't i suspect there isn't the will to do it yeah, and i think i think another argument to support that is I've, i'm i'm currently working on a story about rb leipzig approach to politics as everyone knows one of my beats is basically fan culture and its political aspect what can you tell us about dita matic's policy politics that would be an interesting one exactly mm. that's exactly the point i mean the thing about uh, the the fans in leipzig leipzig is a bit of an island in in saxony saxony is a is a state in germany no for for its right-wing tendencies in many places. Whether that's fair or not, it's a completely different topic, but that's what it's known for. Leipzig is a bit of an island. It's a city that's known for being liberal, for being free, for being accepting. And the fans in Leipzig are, for the most part, there are a couple of groups that are not like that, but for the most part, the fans in Leipzig are exactly that. They're advocates of LGBT rights. They're advocates against anti-Semitism, against racism in general, against the Leipzig equivalent of Pegida, Legida. They took a very brave stance in that sense. I mean, I'm obviously not a big friend of their club or their concept, but as fans, they did their part and they've shown what they stand for. The thing is, their club didn't uh, didn't always like it. Uh, their, their club has decided, and that's an official stance as voiced by uh, CEO Oliver Mintzlaff and Rangnick and others, that the, a football stadium is not designed to include political messages. What is a political message, whether being against racism or against fascist group like Legida, a, a political message is a completely different discussion, if you ask me. But when it comes to that collision between On the one hand, you have the fans that have a very strong political stance and they want to show it and they want to fight discrimination, which is great. I mean, no matter where you, how you look at it, it's fantastic and good on them. But on the other hand, you have a club that doesn't owe them anything, a club that they cannot be held accountable for any reason whatsoever, which results in quotes such as, If uh, Mitzlaff said a few, I think it was last season or the season before that, if someone doesn't like our policies, you can just move on your ticket to someone else. <laughs> that wouldn't happen. It's just not how it works, is it? I mean, that's just That's just insane. not how it works yeah. in, in Germany in general. That's not how it should work also elsewhere, but it unfortunately it does. Here, it's just not the culture. Would you ever think of people like uh, Peter Fischer from Eintracht Frankfurt or Werder Bremen's president, people like that saying, if you don't like my political message, then give your ticket to someone else? No. Even in the case of Peter Fischer and the AfD, 
which is a, the, a complete collision of different worlds. Peter Fisher is a very liberal person against the far right, against racism, against anti-Semitism, very, very vocal about that. But even he said, listen, if someone comes here and they support the IFD, I, I cannot legally tell him not to come. I cannot do anything about it. They're more than welcome to come if they bought a ticket and they don't voice any views that, yeah, any racist or discriminatory views, they're more than welcome to, to come here. They just need to know that this is a, these are the values that we stand for. Mm. So one, one end of the discussion, and on the other, there's someone that says, if you don't like our policies, give your ticket to someone else. So I think also Hasan Hutu said it uh, back, back in the day. So that just shows the stark differences in, in, in a concept of a club and how it's being run, and also what the, the way... Leipzig is being run, what it does also to fans who want to make a change for the good, which I think is a very strong argument, yeah, in my case, against Elbe Leipzig and the way they're being run, uh, amongst others, of course. Yeah, I, I remember writing an article about Dieter Matic back for, for Terry and my old old side, uh, writing football, which is now defunct, and uh, actually doing some research on Dieter Matic, I found out that he actually started the Austrian version of Breitbart. Yeah, I've, some labeled it as the Austrian Breitbart. It's called, originally it was supposed to be called Nea Andivahai, Closer to the Truth. It, the name's changed a bit. It hasn't been made, it's not online yet, so nobody knows what's going to happen. But Mateschitz's views are very clear. In fact, the fans in Leipzig, again, those dominant fan groups there that uh, take a very clear left-wing stance. Uh, they've protested against him on numerous occasions. They've issued statements against him, and they're very, very clearly against his views. And his views are clearly to the uh, populist side of things. One of the quotes that I'll, I'll I mean, I've, I've read that interview with him, and I'll never forget that, that quote of his that said something along the lines of, yeah, he criticized uh, what he called the uh, clerics in Brussels that uh, say stuff like, you know, countries that don't that do not accept multiculturalism will go away. That's a, that's a saying that he thinks is problematic. He has a problem with multiculturalism. In my case, like I can I can honestly say that in my case, obviously I'm a journalist, I'm covering it professionally, but in my case it's also personal. I mean I am multiculturalism. I am Israeli of North African descent. When he talks about that if he's against multiculturalism, that means that me and my likings are out of the country, are out of the culture. They're not included. That's something that I see highly problematic, especially as, a, as an owner or as a financer of a football club that's supposed to basically, as you mentioned, give service to the community. The Matashit issue is highly problematic, definitely. I don't think that his view is mostly... I think that Leipzig are, to be fair to them, they're run to a certain level of independence that allows them to start campaigns against racism for diversity, as they call it. They've started a campaign a few days ago uh, before the elections in uh, Saxony. That independence sort of allows them that. Uh, whether there will be clashes in the future, who knows? But at the moment, in that area at least, Elbe uh, Leipzig operate in a certain level, in a certain bubble from their uh, main financer. I also think Mateschitz is considered by many uh, as a marketing genius. That's what he is. He, he made Red Bull. He is Red Bull. And I think Mateschitz knows that far-right views and yeah, racism and uh, being against, yeah, being against uh, multiculturalism, it's, not, it's just not good for business. As simple as that. And that just goes to show the differences we're talking about. Like in, in many cases, many clubs take such, such a stance because it's not good for business. And as far as I'm concerned, 
as long as you take such a stance, that's fair enough, especially <laughs> in the time we're living in. But that's a massive, massive difference from clubs like Borussia Dortmund that say we are against racism, we are against fascism, we are against homophobia. And they don't just say it, they actually do things within their own community in uh, local areas in Dortmund and beyond with um, yeah, lower socio-economical level and stuff like that. They actually go and do what they say and back their words with actions. And that's the sort of things that I wouldn't necessarily expect Leipzig to do. That's that's exactly the difference between having a club run by 50 plus one, by its members, by its local community, and a club run by a an energy drink firm. Simple as that. Perfect. Interesting segment, chaps. We'll be right back after the musical interlude. Welcome back. Um, well, continuing on from our theme of so-called plastic clubs, as we call them, uh, I thought that perhaps our conversation may go down a certain route, maybe a little bit one-eyed, a little bit one-sided. But as it turns out, that's not been the case. But I thought, well, why don't I see if we can get the views, get the voice of somebody who is actually a fan of one of these clubs. And that's TSG Hoffenheim, obviously uh, financed by uh, Dietmar Hopp. And although I think they've become quite tolerated these days, they were massively opposed, massively against when they first came up into the first Bundesliga. The guy I spoke to was Ryan, who runs the Twitter account Hoffenheim UK. He's a British, he's an Irish, I should say. Irish Hoffenheim fan who's based over here in the UK and so I had a chat with him and uh, I asked him you know, how on earth uh, he decided to get involved in a club like Hoffenheim. Hi my name is Ryan O'Grady you might know me better by my Twitter handle which is at Hoffenheim UK so yeah I'm one of the few Hoffenheim UK based supporters I've been following them for about nine years now so I think that's about 2010 is and um, yeah so I regularly head over to since time to watch them um, I recently was over for a couple of Champions League games, which was a particular highlight for my time as a fan of Hoffenheim. So. What was the first game that you went to see as a Hoffenheim fan, would you say? Yeah, so, well, I started following them about 2010, and my first game was, I think it was October 2011. It was a home game against Kaiserslautern, and it's up there with one of the worst games of football I've ever seen in my life, to be perfectly honest. Both teams were in a relegation dogfight, and it was a one-all draw. Vedad Ibisevic scored, of course he went on to become less popular with Alpha 9 fans after he went to Stuttgart. But yeah, it was, I don't know why, but for some reason I fell in love with this team and it didn't really matter that the first ever game I saw was an absolutely dreadful game. I would like to maybe try and dig a little bit deeper yeah. there. I mean, you don't know why. You, I mean, people oftentimes, we've fallen in love with clubs oftentimes for local reasons, yeah. sometimes familiar reasons. I'm kind of maybe imagining neither of those really. Yeah, neither of those. Uh, quite, judging by your accent, I don't know how many yeah. of your Hoffenheim fans there might be in, in, in Ireland, yeah. but... Uh, um, I mean, what, uh, what, what, what do you think it is about Hoffenheim that's not only made you a fan but also an advocate for them, it's probably fair to say? Yeah, I suppose that is fair to say. So if you haven't guessed from my accent, I'm, fr- I'm from Ireland. But um, yeah, so I, even though I'm from Ireland, I actually spent a lot of my early childhood in Japan. And when I came over, I didn't really have, so I had a Japanese team, I didn't really have a, a British team, so to speak. And I read about this team called Hoffenheim in 442 magazine, and they were supposedly the best village team in the world. So I started playing with them on FIFA. And uh, I don't know how true that is about being the best village team in the world. But anyway, I started playing with them on FIFA and I kind of just fell in love with it. And this was back in the days of Demba Ba and players like that. So I, I don't know, something about Offenheim, it's just, it's never straightforward with them. You know, it's either relegation dogfight or punching above their weight. And it's always, you know, 
we'll score three and you score two, or we'll score two and you score three. It's always exciting, you know. I think that's that's what drew me to them, you know. That, that I think, for example, a lot of my friends would support the bigger teams in England, and for them, it's pressure on every week. You've got to win every 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 week, every game. You got to win. And I think with Hoffenheim, you know, even when they score, this past couple of seasons, even though they've done well, it's still a surprise to me when they win. You know, it's still a, it's still a. It still really makes my weekend when they when they score and when they win. It's just it's just great. I can't really describe it to be honest. Well, a few of us can, yeah. but I mean, we all know how you feel. Yeah. Um, we've all got that, had that feeling, and have that feeling. Uh, I support Borussia Dortmund. My German club oh, yeah. is Borussia Dortmund, who were rubbish when I first started supporting them. They honestly were, but now it's odd following them following a club that is expected to win every game. And my actual team is Crystal Palace, who oh, I have far less pressure. So. I think they're playing tonight as they well. They are, actually, yeah. There's, there's fans on the way to the stadium now. We're actually recording this just outside East Croydon Station, if anyone's uh, interested. So there's a, another dimension to Hoffenheim as a football club. And, and, and obviously that's this, the label of it being a plastic club. It's about yeah. the criticism of the ownership of the club and indeed uh, quite unpleasant uh, and an entirely unnecessary criticism of the club's major stakeholder shall we say Dietmar Hopp and yeah. major benefactor but when did you become aware of that element of supporting Hoffenheim would you say? Yeah so initially when I mentioned earlier I was kind of playing with him on FIFA I wasn't really aware at all of this uh, kind of uh, aspect of Hoffenheim but when I suddenly found out about it I don't know so, um, it was about about a couple of years working into it and I, I was I was kind of intrigued by it to be perfectly honest because I, I kind of understood where people were coming from with the whole Leipzig thing with it being you know an outsider coming in from abroad with a mega company whereas this one it kind of intrigued me because if you were to take the team that is Hoffenheim and you were to put them say I don't know in the championship or the lower reaches of the Premier League I think there would be a club that would be celebrated and it, I think it's weird to say that I guess for fans of German football but if you think about it Dietmar Hoff is a local guy for Hoffenheim you know he used to play for the club himself as a striker as an amateur I think there's even a story that he used to get paid in pickles jars of pickles or something something weird like that but I think it's kind of strange you know for me coming from England where there's such a criticism of you know uh, ownership coming in from the Middle East or from China or from America that they want local people to come in and own a club and Hoffenheim have that and yet in Germany because of the history and not having the, the 50 plus one well not strictly adhering to the 50 plus one rule they're criticised but I think you know, I can understand where the German fans are coming from and I can I can see you know a village of 3,000 people all of a sudden has a 30,000 seater stadium in the Bundesliga I can see why you know people aren't happy about that but I guess for me I'd already fallen in love with the team by this point I, I kind of just decided you know, from my point of view, it wasn't such a big deal, I guess. So I just decided to look past that. You're probably not old enough to remember when Blackburn were good, but yeah. the reason why they became so good is not a too dissimilar a story. Blackburn is a big yeah. town, bigish town, but it was Jack Walker's millions that propelled them yeah. there, and he was celebrated, and a lot of people kind of at the time, although they were a bit suspicious of it, but at the same time they kind of said, "Well, fair play to him, it's his money. He's yeah. spending it how he wants it." But that I think illustrates the gulf, the difference in yeah, culture yeah, between exactly, yeah. German and English football. Let's talk about on-pitch matters. Then uh, I mean, you've had you had this kind of goal period with Ralph Ranić and then then you know a succession of different coaches flirtations with relegation and really I mean when Julian Nagelsmann took over yeah. prematurely it should be said yeah. the club were going well really were going down I don't think too many people would have argued that that yeah. was going I mean uh, now that he's gone could you just reflect mainly upon some of the high moments you mentioned the Champions League but also, could you perhaps give us an indication about what kind of legacy he may leave behind for the club? 
Yeah, so in case anyone doesn't remember or isn't aware, he actually took over early because he was basically he was meant to take over at the beginning of a season, but he ended up taking over in January. I think it's maybe three and a half years ago now because the previous coach, Hoop Stevens, who's a well-known Bundesliga coach, suffered from some heart issues and had to resign or something along those lines. Yeah. Anyway, that was the official line. And, I, and Nagelsmann came in and took over, and at this point we were deep in the relegation spots not even with a chance of reaching the playoff spot and all of a sudden he comes in this young guy I think 29 years old at the time and everybody was like everybody was saying oh it's too soon it's too soon and all of a sudden the team just started to turn and started to win and it was we ended up on the getting the playoff getting safe quite comfortably in the end and it was from there it was just it was only the only way was up he brought in a couple of players but he, he mainly worked you know with players that you know weren't well known like Kevin Vogt for example was not wanted at Kuhn anymore he came in and he was in Nagelsmann's tactical now saying it's what stands him apart he he saw Vogt's potential as kind of like the quarterback role you know the middle of the three centre-backs willing to bring the ball forward get the get the play started pass it off to the midfielders who you know work it forward and I think the quick transitional play was a key factor in Hoffenheim Hoffenheim's play under Nagelsmann and I think that what always I loved about Nagelsmann's football is that whether we were playing the bottom team or the top team, we always played the same way. We always played full throttle. And to be perfectly honest, I think in the European football that was to our detriment to an extent. But I, I, I love that. I love the the excitement that would greet you know that I would greet every game with the fact that it doesn't matter who we play. Like, I think we were Bayern's bogey team if Bayern have a bogey team. In Nagelsmann's period, we uh, beat them a couple of times and we drew them once, I believe, three all at the Allianz Arena. And just the sheer, I think his legacy will be just the the joy he brought to Hoffenheim. You know, this certainly when I came on board, I I kind of came on board towards the end of the Ranić like golden period and just into a period of where it was just relegation every season. Obviously under Gisdol that improved slightly, but Nagelsmann really took it to the next level. You know, when I came on board, there was no chance of Hoffenheim ever qualifying for the Champions League. It wasn't even in my, you know, thought or it wasn't something I thought was possible and just to even have that experience of the Champions League it was just it was it was something that I think I'll live with forever I think as a fan I'm sure if any other fans are listening who have experienced the same they'll know what I'm talking about absolutely yeah it is extraordinary how he was able to improve players to, yeah. to, to that degree let's talk to, I'll ask you about Alfred Truder in a minute although I'm, I'm, I'm we've only as we're recording it's only been two games it's really yeah. super early but let me ask you about Alexander Rosen the sporting King director Rosen. King Rosen yeah. what uh, oh, so that gives me an indication as to yeah. what your opinion of him is yeah. what, when, what, I mean he obviously is still there what kind of uh, impact do you think he has on the club how important a member of the, of the club do you think he is in the, in to, to maybe stop Hoffenheim from just maybe going back into mediocrity now that Nagelsmann has finished yeah, so Rosen first came on board just as Nagelsmann was actually taken over. This was another period of, of relegation dogfights for Hoffenheim and together they kind of really turned the club around and brought it up to where it was and obviously towards the end of Gisdol's reign it started to come down again. I think with Rosen, clearly the guy hasn't, has, he has an eye for a bargain, you know, he has an, he has an eye for talent and, you know, thanks to Nagelsmann they were able to train it up and obviously as a club, Hoffenheim, they need to sell on their talent. I think that Rosen... Clearly, as you heard earlier, I said King Rosen, and 
I think that gives you an indication of what the fans think of him. But I think the fans have complete trust in Alfred Schroeder. Still on, still an unknown, even though he was an assistant coach at Hoffenheim. But Rosen has the complete trust of the Hoffenheim fans. I think that he certainly will be given a lot of leeway in the season and maybe the following season to come because it's clearly going to be a transition period for Hoffenheim. And I think that whilst you know. The, the signings that have been made this summer have certainly appeased the fans in terms of, you know, we lost a good chunk of the team this summer with Joel Linton, Demir Bay, Amiri and Schultz. You know, that's that's pretty much the spine of a team right there. And I think that certainly the fans, and at this point, I believe, and believe the money has been wisely invested. You know, obviously we've not spent nearly as much as we brought in, but that's the way Hoffenheim has run. Obviously we can't afford to be a club that spends $100 million every summer. And, but I think that Rosen, yeah, I think that... He's he's kind of the linchpin for the, this past. Ever since he's come in, he's been the one the one thing around everything around which everything has rotated. In terms of, there's still been overturn of coaches, and, and I think that he's always been there, uh, making sure that the club has a philosophy and it sticks to it. And I think that you can see with the youth team players still being brought through. You see with Nicolas Sula obviously now being a Bayern and Germany international, and uh, with the likes of Dennis Geiger now, who's who's probably this season at least seems to be first choice midfield obviously he's had his injury issues in the past but I think that the philosophy and the foundations he's really laid I think will will hold Hoffenheim well in the future So let's wrap up then but let's just talk about Alfa Truda the new coach new yeah. league for him yeah. so quite a, a bold step you, that's uh, in keeping with the way that, uh, that Hoffenheim worked do you have any uh, concerns would you have preferred to have seen perhaps a coach come in who had a bit more Bundesliga experience? Well, I think I said nearly starting now that nothing's ever straightforward with Hoffenheim. Nothing's ever, you know. So that I, when the Alfred Schroeder, in case anyone is not aware, used to be the, the assistant for Nagelsmann, not this past season, but the season before, obviously. And he moved on to Ajax and was the assistant for Eric Ten Hag in their incredible Champions League run, among other things. And obviously he's come back this year. And to be honest, the... The clear number one choice for the fans was Marco Rosa, who's who's now at Gladbach and of Salzburg, and I think that whilst there was disappointment that we lost out on Rosa, I think that I've just said before that you know the, the fans have complete trust in Rosen, and I think that the fact that this was Rosen's man, the Rosen, the man that Rosen backed, obviously they have a history with Schroeder previously working at Hoffenheim. I think that it's it's interesting because Schroeder's come in and he's not really changed a whole lot in terms of the first two games like you said it's a bit too early to judge but the system has been pretty similar and in terms of maybe it's a bit more possession based but the layout of the team with the three centre backs and the, and the midfield and the attack and it's pretty similar so I'm I'm not expecting drastic changes under Schroeder I think. And uh, let's just go back I mean just talk about in broader terms just the the future of the club uh, that's a big wrap up but well, one, one more yeah. question if I, if I may and, yeah. and this is I mean we were talking about I mentioned Blackburn earlier and then you mentioned how the club is pretty strict on terms of its of its yeah. spending I mean we're recording this over here in England two very very old very famous football clubs have almost certainly been expelled from yeah, the Football League because of a period of years and years of massive mismanagement. Does that, the fact that you've got a guy, although he is financially prudent, the fact that you do have one guy who kind of very much masterminds the finance of this, of this club, does that give you any concerns in the future? Should he, you know, well, I mean, at some point, we all yeah. leave the earth at some point, do we? Yeah. When he retires, he takes a step back. Do you sense any anticipation that the club at some point is going to have to pay its, pay its own way? Do you think it's already doing that? I think 
Are you talking in terms of Rosen being the lynch? I'm, I'm talking in terms of finances, really, finance, more than anything yeah. else. Well, I think, well, Dietmar Hopp's not really getting any younger, so it's interesting to see, at some point, he's probably, let's be honest, he's probably either going to pass on, he's going to take a step back. He, he's in his late 70s now, I believe. So it, it's, it'll be interesting to see, you know, certainly Hoffenheim, they're prudent in their financial dealings. They're not, they're not, ri- they're not a risk taker, that's for sure, certain. So I think that whilst there is a confidence that, the money will be there whenever Hop decides to, you know, step back or passes on. I think that it, it's it's a weird one to be honest because, let's be honest, Hoffenheim, in terms of history, they shouldn't be where they are. They shouldn't be in the Bundesliga, and I could, could I see them heading back to the to the Dritte Liga or the Regional Liga? Absolutely, I could see them doing that. I mean, I I could see I could see this being long term. I could see it being short term. It, it's interesting. It'd be fascinating, quite frankly, to see how it goes. And I think that I've mentioned Rosen already, and I think that he's already been linked with moves away. If he if he moves away, then I think unless there's a proper structure in place, then I do worry about the club in terms of the the recruitment that would be brought in and how the the money would be dealt with. But I I think as it stands just now, I would have a fair deal of confidence to say that half and nine will maybe not be a Bundesliga club for a long time but will remain relevant for a long time whether that be the drift the Zweite Bundesliga or the lower reaches of the Bundesliga but if it can happen to 1860 Munich it can happen to yeah, Kaiserslautern exactly. then it can happen to Hoffenheim yeah, I suppose, just, exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah. those are massive clubs ok well one assumes however that you'll follow them whatever division they're oh in. yeah I mean it might be a bit more of a struggle to watch them when they're in the regional league when they're not on their TV but yeah I'll, be, I'll be still be flying over to Sinsheim good man Ryan, that was a great pleasure. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Cheers. Welcome back, and let's dive into the third and final segment of our show. There's been a lot going on since our last episode, so there's plenty to talk about. So let's start over in East Germany with uh, Chemnitz FC. They are a club with a rich and long history, uh, but these days they seemingly can't get a grip on the right-wing elements of their fans. If somebody asks you to explain what is going on at Cameras of Sea at the moment, Felix, where on earth would you start? Wow. Again, it's, it's again a club that's rooted in its local community, definitely. It's a club, as you mentioned, with a rich history back in the, the, the other days and to this day. And nowadays, it's, most, it's mostly making the headlines for... Up until recently, all the wrong reasons. I think recently the club has put it this way. Let's start with the story itself. We all remember the last summer, August last year, just a year ago, the city of Chemnitz was the subject of far-right marches, far-right protesters marching through the streets, attacking foreigners or people of foreign looks, so to speak, breaking a, throwing bricks at a Jewish restaurant as well. And at the heart of those riots, of those marches, were football hooligans from across Germany, mostly from East Germany, and the the group that sort of mobilized the far-right hooligan scene into Chemnitz was an, a Chemnitzer FC hooligan group, or ultra group, depends who you ask, called Chaotic Chemnitz. It's a group that's been banned from the club for years, and they mobilized uh, big amounts of uh, yeah football hooligans into the streets of Chemnitz, which resulted in riots. And according to the German security services, also to attacks on foreign-looking people, so to speak. Up until now, that group has 
after the riots in Chemnitz, basically the whole thing went quiet. The, the club wasn't really the focus of that, uh, even though it was known in Germany. We've reported it at Deutsche Welle that that particular group was at the center of things. Fast forward a few months later, Chemnitz FC made the headlines once again. And this time it was the club, not only its fans. Because just this season, uh, earlier this season, Chemnitz FC held a memorial service for a hooligan that just died, a hooligan called Thomas Haller. He was one of the founder of a group called Hunara, initials of hooligans, Nazis and racists. Just it's simple as that. that. Um, nice and the club or its fans, depends who you ask, uh, someone held a memorial service for him after his death. He died of cancer. There was a, That was a turbulent, turbulent time for this club. Loads of headlines, loads of, uh, of criticism of how they should treat their far-right element. And uh, many club personnel lost their jobs over this. Uh, many club personnel left their, job over, left their jobs over this. Nowadays, the club is practically, it went insolvent two seasons ago. It's still, ha- it's still of massive financial troubles. The insolvency administrator, which is a lawyer, Michel Zobutzik from Düsseldorf, he is uh, trying his best to fight the far-right element. A good example of that was just recently as a club striker and captain, Daniel Fran, was spotted in the away end with members of two well-known groups that are associated with the far-right scene. Kauti Chemnitz was one of them. Another one was called NS Boys, allegedly New Society. <laughs> NS is, for those of us that don't speak German, NS is are the initials of the Nazi party, the Nationalsozialistische Partei. And they use, they also use um, yeah, symbolism from, from the Second World War pretty openly. So the, the club's captain was spotted in an away end next to these people. As a result of that, the club decided to sack him, which was quite brave. There, there was another incident regarding Daniel Fran, wasn't there, in the match against Alting Glick, uh, which, uh, you know, you mentioned the memorial for, for Thomas Haller. During that match, he actually held up a T-shirt saying, support your local hools. Um, afterwards, when it was pointed out in the press, well, that was a bit right-wing, that T-shirt. He said, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I never knew anything about that. Uh, I'm not a right-wing person. And then he went on and was spotted with these far-right elements, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, the club was quick to react and they've done the right thing. Many people in Germany have commended them for that. Daniel Fahn himself released a statement, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, saying that he rejects all sorts of discrimination, he's against it, that he will never support yeah, far-right elements or discriminatory chanting. The background to this was an away game at uh, Bayern Munich Amateur, Bayern Munich's second team. They played away, I think it was last weekend. The, the, the club's players did not go to the away and to thank the fans. The reason behind it was that the club said that some fans had chanted yeah, anti-Semitic chants and racist chants of other sorts. So the club decided uh, single, like from their side not to thank the fans because of that, and they released a statement saying, we will never accept it. Daniel Fran released a statement later saying the exact same thing, I will never accept discriminatory chanting. He did say, however, that his thing is identifying with fans. According to Fran, he did the same thing when he played for 
Leipzig, for Babelsberg, where he just started. He said he always does that. He identifies himself with the fans. He doesn't think about their political affiliation. He just tries to identify himself and make himself loved by the fans. That was his take. And he threatened to sue the club over this. And that's where we stand right now. The club itself... I would say it's starting to turn its image around in terms of how they've handled the Daniel Franz story and the racist chant, the alleged racist and anti-Semitic chantings. But there's still a long way to go, definitely. Oh, I mean, there was another incident which we reported on the Bundesliga Fanatic. There's a group called Sektion Vielfalt, which, you know, could translate to Section for Diversity, something to that extent. A member of that group was threatened by right-wing fans during the uh, DFB-Pokal match uh, against HSV. Um, they, they'd actually put up a banner, uh, simply quoting that they were for diversity, and uh, he was told that uh, if that banner hangs the following match, we'll finish you off in no uncertain terms, by a couple or three right-wing fans. And the club didn't actually respond rather well, uh, really well to that, because, uh, you know, they, they said in a press release that they thought it was maybe just a case of a couple of fans drinking a beer too much. Which, you know, it, it's if you have left-wing fans chanting for diversity in cabinets, if you ask me, that should be embraced. They are 11 people. They're 11 very brave people, if you ask me, given the sort of atmosphere that's over there. I remember doing a podcast, Aufstieg, back in the day, where we actually travelled to Chemnitz, and we actually spoke English in the stands, and we got more than one curious look, putting it mildly. Uh, we left Chemnitz rather quickly after the game was done, because we really didn't feel comfortable within that city. It's not a great place to be. Right-wing, it's a hub for right-wing culture uh, these days in Germany. Ironically... I was just wondering, yeah. is that, I mean, is this down to some insularity with the, with the town, with the city itself? Or, I mean, are there, I mean, are there economic drivers behind this? I mean, if there's not much commerce there, for example, you know, not much opportunities to welcome people from other parts of the country or other parts of Europe, other parts of the world even, to come and work and live with people. Do you think that the, these are these are the broader factors involved or, or do you think it's more of a football-related issue? No, it's not a football-related issue. It's it's never just about football. And that's it's not about football here as well. I mean, you are partly right. There are uh, socio-economical elements involved here, but I always find it problematic to talk about socio-economical elements when you talk about anti Semitic and right racist chants, and when you talk about actual people that call themselves hooligans, Nazis, and racists, we can talk for hours about yeah that element of the Chemnitz story. I don't think it's that simple. I don't think every single person from Chemnitz is a far right person or a racist person or something along those lines. There are foreigners that live there. I know for a fact that. As I said, there's a Jewish restaurant there. There are elements of the city that are still functioning. It's not all about that element of Chemnitz. Actually, the, probably the most famous, uh, one of the most famous things to come out of Chemnitz is a band called Kraftklub, rock band. Brilliant. Really, really recommend it. And they wrote a love song for their city. They live in Chemnitz to this day. They were very, very popular in Germany. And they say that, that, they, lo that they love their city, a city that is full with pensioners, 
Nazis and Hooligans. That's the words <laughs> of the song from 2007, if I'm not mistaken. It's called Karl Marx. That's strongly recommended. But that just goes to show the sort of uh, element in the city. I think there are examples in the east of Germany where the that element of the of a certain club's support has been, I don't know whether to use the term tamed, but has been put in control. Dynamo Dresden is a very good example of that. The club has been doing incredible work among its own fans and strengthening elements that support yeah values that are values of the society like against racism and and, and activity along those lines and even in the the Kablok, probably the most famous and the most notoriously famous stand in germany the home of ultras dynamo there was a, a relatively big report big uh, spiegel article a few months ago saying how matchgoers in the Kablok are saying that in the last yeah two and a half years they've been hearing a lot less racist chantings a lot less racist remarks. There's certainly there's certainly been a change for the better there, and I think many clubs should take should take example of that of Dynamo Dresden's work. And by the way, speaking of our previous discussion, one of the strongest elements at Dynamo Dresden is that element of staying true to our fans and staying by the sides of our fans. And for instance, when they face issues with uh, the law, with police, stuff like that, the club will always, will almost always show solidarity when it comes to things that it sees as not just. I'm not talking about, we all remember that game in Karlsruhe where uh, several tills were robbed and stuff like that. I'm not talking about that, of course. But when it comes to the organizers of the fan march that day, the club stood by the sides of the of the organizers. They supported them. They donated the uh, players' shirts in terms of like uh, raising money for them. So that solidarity within the community also has its effect politically. And I think that in Chemnitz, there's a sort of realization that this is the way to go. It's going to take time for them to reach that level, also because their support is a lot smaller than Dynamo. Dynamo is a massive, massive club. But I think the examples are certainly there, and we need to give credit where it's due. Yeah, in Chemnitz's case, there's a long way to go. But yeah, the first step has been made, and at least there's that. So yeah, the uh, insolvency guy Klaus Simon and uh, sporting director Thomas Zabotzig have uh, several times come out in the press asking the what they consider to be the vast majority of fans, the silent majority, to stop being silent, please. We need you now. And yes, they're right. If if in fact the majority of fans aren't Nazis, now would be the time to show it. On the other hand, side, I have to say, I mentioned six months fearful. I thought the club was ra- rather tardy in that regard, and. I mean, that would be my criticism of Chemnitz over the years. They have been incredibly tardy, to say the least. We mentioned Thomas Haller. His firm was actually uh, providing security services up until his death to uh, to Chemnitz FC, which sort of is mind-boggling. If you don't want Nazis at your ground, don't give the security firm jobs. It happens in many, many places in East Germany, unfortunately. I know for a fact that it happens in at least a few more clubs that, yeah, the, the connections between the hooligan scene, the, in Germany they call it Tourstair, which is basically bouncers outside clubs. Bouncer scene, yeah. And, and the security world is just so intertwined in that area of the world that, yeah, I would assume, and I also know that 
it takes place in other places. I think in many cases, clubs are, they don't always have enough power to fight it, to be fair. There are clubs that try nonetheless. I can name Lok Leipzig as a very good example of that club that doesn't have the means, but still do their best to sort of get rid of that element of their support. And there is unfortunately a far-right element in their support the club still does its best to fight it and to show that they're against it i think chemnitz were asleep in that sense for many many years they are waking up now which is encouraging it will take time for them to come to terms with how big the problem is and how what is the way to go in that sense but again it all starts with a first step. And again, if, if we're talking about um, initiatives against racism and stuff like that, one of the biggest uh, stories in Germany in recent weeks was, yeah, the highest foul player, Bakariata, refugee, who's been uh, the subject of uh, reports by Bild basically doubting his identity. Several clubs have made complaints against Heisfau after losing to Heisfau. Chemnitz was not one of them. Chemnitz played against Heisfau in the DFB Pokal, and they say, we we accept the result. We will not complain because of such an issue. They're one of only three clubs to do that so far. The other one was uh, Darmstadt, also a club that's very active in the community and also understands its social responsibility. And the third club, it hasn't been officially confirmed, but reports in local media in Hamburg suggest that FT St. Pauli pretty obviously say that they will not make a complaint should they lose the Hamburg derby in three weeks' time. Yeah, Evolt Lien was pretty unequivocal about that in the press. He, uh, what he basically says, why? what's all the fuss about? Bakary Yatta is, uh, is a guy who pays his taxes, plays beautiful football. Le- leave that alone. Why? And more than that, uh, Oke Göttlich, the club's president, said in those exact words that the reporting and the way Yatta is being discussed in the public, in the public, yeah, his words were, is shaking us to the core from a human point of view. So that, that those were his words. I don't, Zang Pauli with everything they do, with everything they're known for, I really don't see them making a complaint about such things, especially because we're talking about refugee after all. But still, that, that, that shows that Chemnitz are trying to be on the good side of the media reports, of the good side of public attention in Germany. It's not perfect. As you mentioned, there are still issues and they're not going to disappear anytime soon. But it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. It's definitely a story that isn't going away anytime soon, I think. No, it's not. And, uh, you know, one, one would hope that the club finally takes these things seriously moving forward. And now for something completely different. Tennis Borussia Berlin. Uh, mm. Terry, me and you, we've, we've actually been to the Momsen Stadium. Yeah, we have. A uh, lovely place for, for both, you know, Saturday or Sunday morning football. On one of our last podcasts of the previous season, we, we talked about Tennis Borussia fans' so-called caravan of love. For those who don't know the story, could you quickly fill them in on what the caravan of love represented, Felix? Yeah, the caravan of love was, for me, the most refreshing story of the of last season. Basically, Tennis Borussia Berlin, a former Bundesliga side, nowadays playing the Oberliga, the fifth division. A businessman, um, a gym owner called uh, Jens Redlich, has taken control of the club, which the fans didn't like. Uh, to say the least, it's just just for context. This is a club with very uh, active fans in in terms of their politics, in terms of their democratic tendencies, in terms of their very very clear stance against, especially against anti-Semitism, but actually against any sort of discrimination. This is the fan scene that gave Germany probably the most 
famous anti-homophobia campaign in sports here in football, uh, football fans gig in homophobia. So a very a small group, but a rather active and a jolly one, really, really nice people. And they decided that Jens Redlich is not to their liking and that they want their club to stay their club. A democratic club. There was a series of events. One of the probably the most famous one was a, a, a member a member meeting an AGM that took place at Tennis Borussia Berlin, in which the club's members have fine have suddenly found people that they never knew before. Again, we're talking about a rather small club. They started talking to these people. Turns out people from places like Bulgaria and Poland sort of showed up and they've sort of asked them, why are you here? Like, who brought you here? One of them said, according to Tagesspiegel, I'm here under the orders of my employer. So all that in order to get Jens Redlich people into the uh, management and into the executive positions. The, the fans didn't like it. And they say, if that's what Redlich does, we're out. And they weren't just out. They went to other clubs to support other clubs. They were support for rent in that sense. They called it a caravan of love. They visited loads and loads of clubs. Uh, Maccabi Berlin, my personal favorite, but they also went to Rotterdam Leipzig is another. They went to the other tennis Borussia based in Wiesbaden. If I'm not mistaken, something along the lines of four, 350 kilometers from Berlin was like an 11th uh, division game or something along those lines. And they went all the way to support them for a whole year. Just before the season it started, uh, news started to come in that there was an upheaval of sorts in the uh, TB Berlin's executive positions. Jens Redlich all of a sudden was out, according to a statement by the club. That, of course, meant the fans can return to support their club. I've been to their first game to their first Tebe game back in the stands. It was against uh, Tasmania Berlin away. Fantastic atmosphere. Jens Redlich was there in person, by the way. I've seen it with my own eyes. Loads of anti-Redlich chanting, loads of, you know, happy faces. There was a huge banner saying we're back for good. I do believe the Redlich story will keep on rumbling on. He will take it probably to uh, a legal jurisdiction of some sort. I don't think it ends here. But in terms of the fans, they also return to the Mumsen side. You just mentioned uh, last match day, big celebration there, choreo, loads of fun. So long may it continue. I mean, Tennis Borussia is one of the most interesting clubs in Germany. Uh, it's not massive, but it's definitely interesting. It's always fun. Great atmosphere if you're in Berlin. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, me too. Well, to add a bit to what you said, Jens Redlich actually came out in the press just recently in uh, Tagesspiegel and some other Berlin publications. Um, he actually stated that he was on vacation when he heard of his uh, him resigning. And he told Tagesspiegel that there was an email that was quoted out of context, which was then used by opponents within the club to uh, get him ousted. His opponents were rather quick to change all the locks at the offices, you know, to keep his people out. And, you know, he's, as you said, he's taking them to court. And, and just recently, Tagesspiegel reported that the court case against Tebe's new board is going to start on September 11th, as Jens Redlich claims that he still is the rightful CEO of Tennis Borussia Berlin. So the last words in this case haven't been spoken. Taking a look at the side and how they're doing in the Oberliga right now, they're actually three out of three, topping the table. 
So it doesn't seem to affect the team in any sort of fashion there. But, you know, given that there's going to be a court case, there are two differing sides here, Terry, which side would you believe? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's very difficult to uh, get into the mind of a, of a German high court judge. I, I find it hard enough to get into the mind of a British one. I don't know the law, but I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean you would imagine that if the people do not want a CEO there and have taken steps to get rid of him, that... You would think that natural justice presumes that a judge would would say, well, you know, you've been sacked, mate, deal with it. And hopefully that will that will be what has happened. I mean, I have not followed this very, very clearly, but in any way that you you look at this, if you are not wanted at a football club, then you should leave. And I think that that is hopefully how the courts will see it as well. Well, talking about not being wanted, let's turn to our last topic of the podcast, Clemens Turnies. Yay. Yes, we, we have to talk about Schalke's CEO. Uh, you know, he's, he's such a spanner, to say the least. So he is a meat factory owner who talks about global warming at the day of Crafts and Paderborn. He goes on saying that, you know, higher taxes on rich people like me isn't the solution especially higher taxes on the meat industry, it's not not a solution whatsoever. Which, you know, fair enough, he's entitled to that view. Uh, some people may differ. Me counted amongst them, but be that, you know, that that's not the point here. What then happened, though, is inexcusable. Turner's went out saying that 20 electricity plants should be built in Africa to combat global warming. Because those electricity plants would give the Africans light, it would stop deforestation, and it would stop Africans from making as many babies when it gets dark. Crickets at first, and then, surprisingly, he actually got a round of applause. So some people had actually brought their inner racist and decided to release it at that moment when Clemens Tonis spoke. After those quotes became public, many people, me included, thought, well, that level of racism cannot be excused. Surely Schalke have to let him go. In the end, he spoke to the honorary council of Schalke, and they decided to give him, slap him on the wrist with a three-month suspension. So, what, what shall we make of all of that? It's just shocking, to say the least, isn't it? It's absolutely shocking, and it's more than shocking. It it demines uh, and derails years and years and years and years of anti-discriminatory work done in Gazan and the region by Schalke. They were one of the clubs that were commended for their very clear position against racism, for their, their very clear stance on this. They were commended for their work in their community, as we've discussed earlier, for exactly that. And then they come up with this. I mean, it's basically, it's unexplainable. There is no, there, it's inexplicable. There is no way on earth that a person should remain in office after saying that in a city like Gelsenkirchen, in a city that's full of people of immigrant background, a city that has large percentage of people that don't even have German nationalities. You walk down the street in Gelsenkirchen and you come across people from so many different backgrounds, from so many different religions, from so many different skin colors, from so many different languages. It's it's a city that's incredibly, incredibly diverse, for better or for worse. But that's the city, and that's where Schalke is based. And given that, I think it it, it was a criminal quote, not no no nothing less than that. I think that was exactly why 
Schalke's fans have taken a very, very clear stance against it. I mean, Ultras Gelsenkirchen are known in... Uh, they are not known for being extremely political. They say in their statutes that they don't do party politics, but it is known that they've chased out far-right marches out of Gelsenkirchen before. And also in this case, they say the one thing we will never accept is racism. You come to our Nordkurve, you'll be racist, we will make sure you'll be out. We will make sure you'll be dealt with. And they've done exactly that in the case of Clement Sunius. The game afterwards in the DFB Pokal, a massive banner across the whole stand, across the away end, saying we show racism the red card, we show Tunius the red card. Also with like a massive banner saying turn us out. I think Schalke fans are the only ones to be commended in this story. Schalke's Ehrenrat, the honorary council, I will never be able to understand this decision given the context, given the club, given the region, given the political reality and the social reality we're living in. It's just impossible for me to explain on the basis of what have they made that decision. I can, I have my own guesses, but I have not, no nothing uh, based on facts. It's just nothing you can explain. It was a downright racist quote. One more thing we should mention here. After, like, Tunis apologized after that quote. To be fair to him, he did apologize, which resulted in a few of German football's biggest names coming out in his defense, saying that his apology should be accepted, that Clemens Tunis is not racist, that... Basically, standing up for for the man after what he said. This, I think, is an even more worrying trend in that sense, because this just goes to show that if you know the right people, if you're well-connected, if you are, let's say it as it is, an all-white man with a lot of money, you will be spared by your peers if you get caught making racist remarks. That's a very, very strong lesson for German football. German football has taken pride for its anti-racist and anti-discriminatory work for many, many years. I think I wouldn't risk saying that the whole thing is at risk now, but at Schalke, it's definitely something that they need to they need to look, take a long, hard look at themselves because they've derailed years and years and years of work. And I think the remarks from so many football people in Germany defending Tönnies should be, should serve as a warning, as a warning sign for basically every single one of us that loves the game in Germany as it is. I doubt it that it will be perceived that way, but I generally, genuinely think that we need to keep it in mind the next time German football starts an anti-racism campaign. Well, I remember an anti-racism campaign during the 90s, which was called Give Racism the Red Card, not Give Racism a Three-Month Suspension. But, you know, given that he has gotten the three-month suspension, and given the fact that the Schalke fans actually didn't protest in the match against Bayern München, from what I could tell. Actually, Bayern München fans, they unrolled the banner, and they stated something to the extent that... Uh, the Tunis isn't going to be the last racist. But, you know, they, they actually showed some political colour there, but the Schalke fans didn't mention them at all. Don't you think that, that the club actually needs sustained pressure over time to actually do the right thing here? No, I genuinely don't. I think Schalke's fans have taken a very clear stance on this. They had a very good statement on it. I do think they'll voice their views again. I'm not entirely sure if there were no banners during that game against uh, Bayern, but you did mention that banner by Bayern fans. I mean, Chikeria, Bayern's uh, most well-known ultra groups, ultra group are well-known. Uh, ultra group are like 
a lot. Yeah, I do I'm like also a, a big fan of the work they do, both in terms of football support and in terms of anti-discriminatory work and anti-racist work and anti-fascist work. People don't give them enough credit for that. And uh, th this banner was spot on. Tunis is not the only racist. There are many of us here that come across them every single day. And what this banner, how I interpreted this banner was that do not let this go. Do not leave it with a slap on the wrist, as you said. Do something about it. Say something about it. And I do think the Gelsenkirchen Ultras will take this forward and will continue to protest in different forms, in different ways. I don't think they'll, they'll let this slide only because they come from this community. They know what it means to be racist in a city like Gelsenkirchen or to make racist remarks. I, I don't know Clement Tunis personally. I don't know if he's a racist person in general or not. But that remark was just downright racist. There is no way around this. And I do think we'll see more protests. I think the club needs to address it sooner rather than later because it's not going to go away. It's not one of those things that you think in two, three weeks uh, we, will, we will all forget about this VAR decision or about this handball. It's something so substantial and so different and so, yeah, it's something that, that touches the heart of the city in which Schalke is based. And if that won't be addressed properly, I, I, I would expect more actions against the club. I actually read up on Clemens Turner's after, you know, the quote uh, appeared in, in the German press. You know, I knew that he was a, a meat factory owner of some sort. But, you know, he's a hunter who says that he's uh, hunted pretty much every animal in Africa that seems to be living there, which, you know, charming, if you ask me. But then there was, a, was actually a bunch of articles that I came across in different publications from all around Westphalia, which stated that he actually has pushed labor costs down by employing and shipping in East European workers, outsourcing jobs that, you know, in the past went to the community, making conditions for workers much worse. Terry, here's Schalke, a club that prides itself on its working class background. You know, you have the German word of Malore, which is, you know, working hard and in the club values, it is something that needs to be appreciated. Isn't a man who does such things inexplicable? an inexplicable choice for a CEO for a club like Schalke? Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, as a, I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm a middle-aged white man from the UK. <laughs> and uh, I, in moments like this, I try as much as possible to listen as uh, more and talk less. But I mean, I don't really see how anybody uh, with any kind of conscience could make such a remark and then feel that they could continue with their post. I don't even know why they would want to to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I think that if somebody, they should just have apologised and just done what I would consider to be an honourable thing, and that is to step down from public life altogether mm. and take your shitty opinions into your own home where you can toxify your own house with them and, and leave everybody else out of it. I mean, Felix has, has, has explained the situation there uh, extremely eloquently and better than I ever could, and it is entirely appropriate that Clemens Tonyers and indeed people like Clemens Tonyers and we, we know people like Clemens Tonyers they are in, involved in our lives on a daily basis these are privileged privileged old white men who consider themselves to be above the concerns of the rest of us and that is because in many cases they are they have the money and the power and the influence um, to be above that and it, it's wearying to endure such men and it's particularly wearying in this kind of context. 
as well. So I, I think that's really as much as I, I can say about that. But I can only hope that, uh, that what Felix says is correct and that more pressure is put to bear and that hopefully, you know, in due course, this man is gone and hopefully not to be replaced by somebody like him, which, of course, it would, wouldn't be the, the, the most helpful thing to, to happen. Yeah, it's an interesting one. We'll see what happens. I mean, what, what also is shocking for me is, is Jochen Schneider, who's coming out in the press week after week, trying to explain this away. You know, when the fans had that banner saying, turn his out, show Ren, turn his the red card, he said, yeah, you know, they're showing him the red card, and, you know, after you get a red card in football, you're suspended, and then you come back. <laughs> I'm not sure they're really getting the symbolism of that, but, uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I think I think it is more of a willing, willingly misunderstanding mm. that the, the statement that was being made. Uh, I mean, for me, it all boils down to one thing. You make the same remark that Clemens Tunius had made. You make the same remarks at the Feltins Arena in front of another fan. You will automatically, I can almost guarantee you'll get a, a stadium banning order. Automatically, without question. Yeah, Say that as Clemens Tunius, <laughs> three months and you're back. Mm. Being the club's boss. So that says it all as far as I'm concerned. It also says it all in terms of how powerful and how connected these people are. And second of all, it says it says it all that, yeah, being against racism is well and good. But when it touches their own home and when it touches the people that are close to them, then the, the fight against racism takes their secondary role, which yeah. I find a massive shame. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, to, to add one thing about Clemens Turns that I forgot to mention is actually that he's a, he's a good friend of Vladimir Putin's. What a bunch of charming guys these two are together, I would imagine. And, you know, Gazprom is involved. Ed Chalker. Clemens Turner is moving away. What, and his friendship with Vladimir Putin, what would that do to, you know, Chalker's main sponsor and their commitment for the future? Who might know? Anyways, I, I think we've uh, been talking for quite some time. Uh, I, I plan on making this a podcast for 45 to... 55 no, minutes. You, no, you didn't. I, I did. He said, Felix, he says this all the time. He said, oh, I was planning on only making it half an hour. He said, hour and a half later, after we've started. <laughs> he just don't... Anyways, chaps, uh, both of you have been huge <laughs> enlightening. Felix, uh, you're the you're, you know, our star guest today. Um, tell us where people can find your work and where, where they can find you on Twitter. Okay, so first of all, most of my work can be found on the Deutsche Welle website, dw.com. Just search for my name, Felix Tamzut. You'll get a host of my articles, I would assume. And you can also find me on Twitter at ftamsut, F-T-A-M-S-U-T. You're more than welcome. Always love having new followers. That's how the platform works, so... Yeah, that's how uh, you can find more work. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we were absolutely glad to have you on. You were really enlightening. Uh, and, you know, I only can emphasize, follow this man on Twitter. He's hugely interesting. And his work for Deutsche Welle is absolutely excellent. Uh, Terry DeVellon, where can people find your point of view about Star Trek and James Bond? <laughs> <laughs> well, can I, before I bore you with my uh, that, um, can, can I just echo Nick's gratitude, Felix? And thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, certainly exhort uh, anybody who doesn't already to follow Felix on, on Twitter. It is educational. I have a newsletter, Bundesbag, Bundesliga newsletter, tinyletter.com forward slash Bundesbag. At some point in the future, I have a book coming out, publication to be determined 
it's about Borussia Dortmund, so it'll probably be a few months after Uli Hesse's book has sort of like done the rounds on paperback. So uh, <laughs> I suspect <laughs> that it'll be a little bit later in the year. <laughs> Anywho, so yeah, yeah, no, that's that's me. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to argue with me or engage with me, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Terry DeFellin, but I tend to lurk more than uh, I um, uh, update. The life of an author. <laughs> All right, you can find my work on the Bundesliga Fanatic, and you can follow me on Twitter at normusings. Uh, chat's absolutely delighted to chat to the both of you, and hopefully, Talking Football will be back in a couple of weeks' time. 